Hi guys, welcome back to Hollow Hollow. Um, this week we're taking a look into Asian representation in Western society. So we plan on, you know, sharing our personal experiences while also taking a look at representation through a socio-political lens, um, a cultural lens through media, and also examining cultural biases and how we can overcome them. Yeah, so I guess to kind of start off, we're all going to talk about our personal experiences with um, anti-Asian racism and Asian representation. For me personally, I guess the biggest thing that's happened to me is when I tell people I'm from the Philippines, the first thing they say is like, really? Like, you don't you don't look like you're from the Philippines. And then I have to clarify that I'm half Filipino. And then when I like detail that I grew up in Manila, they ask me, I've had people ask me, oh, so like, do you live in a hut? Or like people ask me, why is your English so good? Like, how do you not have an accent? Like, or like, do you live by the beach? So like stereotypes like that, that kind of shine a light as to how, you know, Filipinos are, you know, portrayed in the media on a daily basis. Yeah, um, as a third culture kid, um, I think it's sort of hard for me to define where I'm from and what I am, but I'd say that logically I am Asian American. Like, I was raised for most of my life in New York City. I was raised primarily by my Filipino immigrant mother, and you know, honestly, for me, I think it's hard to resonate with Asian representation in Western society or in the United States because I think many people didn't think I was qualified to be a representation because I didn't look Asian enough. You know, like I just get really confusing looks or people being really surprised when they found out I was, you know, Asian. Though, to be fair, like I was I was there for 12 years and I don't think I was really old enough to understand like inherent racism or if there was any, like, if there truly was any way that I was growing up in a predominantly, like, um, like discriminatory setting. Um, I actually think, funnily enough, like, I felt more comments when I moved to an international school, like, in the Philippines. I feel like even though it's, like, international, we're a very Western, mm-hmm. like, oriented school. And, you know, I'd get a lot more comments about my ethnicity or where are you really from type questions. Okay. Here's my time to go off. So... <laughs> Um, Yeah, I go to Duke University, if you guys didn't know, Um, and so it is a predominantly white school, and I honestly love my experience in campus, but um, it doesn't mean that I didn't have my own fair share of, you know, microaggressions and different, like, instances of racism. So, you know, when people ask me about this, like, the one story I always kind of go back to is my time during um, an an engineering project, and I was um, one of two girls in the group of four. Um, I was the only Asian, and so I told one of my groupmates, um, who was a white male, that um, I had to leave early because I had um, a, a, um, a practice for my urban dance team. And he was like, oh, you're a hip-hop dancer. Like, y- you don't look like a hip-hop dancer. And I was like, um, so, like, why don't I look like a hip-hop dancer? And he was like, oh, because you're Asian, obviously. And I was like, okay, then, so what type of dancer do I look like? And he was like, oh, like an Asian dancer. And so after that like I just left like I just got up and left I didn't even want to argue with him which in hindsight I probably should have to clarify that um you know being an Asian dancer not only generalizes you know a whole different like all these different types of multicultural dancers each with their own background and each with their own story but you know he also typecasted me as a dancer based on my race which is very problematic and you know like there are so many other stories that I wish I had the time to touch on um but when I was talking to my uncle who went to USC and he also 
um, did his high school in the U.S. in boarding school. He was telling me of like you know, sent like also racial, um, r- like racist situations that he he like that he was involved in like even back in like the eighties nineties. So one of the experiences he talked to me about was when he was playing basketball with a- another white white friend and. Um, he was winning and obviously his white friend got really frustrated and called him a Jap. And so at that time, he didn't really know what a Jap meant, especially because he was Chinese Filipino. Um, but it turns out that that kid he was playing with, he learned the term from his parent, his dad actually, who was a soldier in World War II. So it just, like, you know, it'd be really interesting to look at the background behind, you know, racial aggressions um, um, on Asians in the U.S., yeah, so kind of going off of that, a lot, I guess a lot of it's, or rather to rephrase, the most profound case of anti-Asian racism was during um, the World War II, right after Pearl Harbor, 1941. There was just a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment, mm-hmm. and there was this thing called Yellow Peril that was particularly prevalent prevalent in California, where there was this mass hysteria against mm-hmm. Japanese people. And, um, you know, there was the creation of uh, quote-unquote Jap hunting licenses, where people were basically being taught how to racially profile Asians, essentially, mm-hmm. even people who weren't necessarily Japanese, and essentially target them, um, you know, arrest them, ab- like, uh, ab- verbally abuse them, essentially. And then, of course, you have the cre- creation of Japanese internment camps, where people who had no strong opinions against mm-hmm. the war whatsoever were just unlawfully unlawfully taken and locked up um and yeah not not to mention all the propaganda that was circulating at the time that depicted japanese people very animalistically and there was just huge like sentiment of generalization that was happening that coupled with pre-existing laws that already made it hard for immigrants asian immigrants to kind of establish themselves in the united states and also restricted their ability to own land and own property that already kind of further fueled this anti-Asian racism that was already rampant in the United States. And in 1965, that kind of alleviated with the Immigration Act, which allowed more Asian immigrants to enter um, and essentially formed the background or the basis for the model minority myth, because as they opened up borders, they started to prioritize people in healthcare, law, and like really professional um, backgrounds. And those people essentially became a significant portion of the Asian American community back then and still today. And this, again, is the basis of how the model minority was created and largely due to the 1965 immigration law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really interesting to see this like transformation of like all these like animalistic and barbaric like stereotypes that were portrayed in World War II to this model minority myth. So if you guys didn't know what the model minority myth is, it's basically um, a generalization of how Asians um, are a law-abiding group of people, and it originated in the 1960s and was meant to target people mostly of like Chinese and Japanese descent. And you know, obviously, there are several areas of problems that arise from this, you know, portrayal of Asians. And so it kind of generalizes a diverse group into something that's monolithic. So, for example, um, like Bhutanese Americans, they have a higher rate; they have higher rates of poverty than Japanese Americans. And then it also is very prevalent, I think. I'm not sure if you guys have any stories on this, but it's also very prevalent on the, um, you know, the mental health of Mm -hmm. a lot of Asian American students. So another story that I had was, so same engineering class, um, one of my friends, he was like doing a sketch for um, 
a class project and another white male went over looked at his work and was like oh this sketch is really good like i wish i had an asian in my group and so it's just this image and this portrayal of a very studious asian american who excels you know mostly in math and science and it's it's all these ex expectations of someone that's supposed to be high achieving which is really detrimental to the health especially of like you know second generation asian americans in fact you know like a mental hotline counselor in new york he was saying that most of his calls regarding academic pressure were from the chinese population since a lot of them are afraid to reach out regarding their mental health which is you know created by this model minority myth and it's like hidden under the guise of perfection yeah i think yeah exactly what you were saying under the the, the guise of, of perfection i think this model minority myth is something that you would call like a positive stereotype mm -hmm. like it it generalizes a group of people with seemingly very desirable like traits and i think they're more likely to persist in society and like sort of like get swept under the rug as opposed to ne like negative stereotypes mm -hmm. because it's like oh but like we're complimenting you so like just take it you know mm -hmm. but it actually does so much more damage than i think people actually realize yeah i think also the fundamental like statistical basis for the creation of the model minority myth is just really like analytically flawed mm -hmm. i know when it was being created in 1966 by sociologist william peterson they would often use household income statistics as well as education rates. However, using those statistics is not the best way to kind of form mm -hmm. the model minority. That, that's why people consider it a myth, because it obscures the fact that many Asian American families have larger households with more adults who are employed than white families. Um, within the Asian American community, certain groups are not doing well. Cambodians have mm -hmm. a significantly lower per capita income and do not conform to the model minority a large percentage of the Asian American community still live below the poverty line and are uninsured at higher rates than white Americans. And this is extremely dangerous because in a sense, it really sweeps under the rug the struggles that this community actually goes through. And again, it just kind of invalidates that by projecting mm -hmm. them as people who are really successful and people who really know what they're doing with their lives, when really the majority of them still face discrimination, still face mm -hmm. workplace harassment because of the mm -hmm. way they look and because of their race. Um, so this model minority myth, statistically speaking, is also just fundamentally flawed. Yeah, so like jumping off from what you were saying, Elizabeth, like it's even if it is a positive, you know, a, pos a positive quote unquote stereotype, you know, like it's kind of like a double edged sword because like, as I was saying with like the you know, this expectation that students have, it kind of continues on to the office. And, you know, like, we've all heard the phenomenon of the glass ceiling to deal mm -hmm. with, like, you know, women's rights and expectations regarding women. Yeah. But there's also this thing, when I was reading, called the bamboo ceiling. And it's this difficulty of Asian Americans and Asians in general in climbing the corporate um, ladder. So if we look at yeah. statistics, or if we're talking numbers, um, there's only 1.4% 1. 1. of Fortune 500 CEOs and 1.9% of corporate officer um, corporate officer positions overall that go to Asian Americans, which is really weird considering they account for 27% of the U.S. workforce. And so this minor model minority myth, this perpetuates an idea that Asians in general are like diligent, heads down workers and, you know, lack the assertiveness to kind of take on these risk taking abilities in order to maintain high leadership positions. Yeah, I think that they're is definitely a cultural bias in relation to the bamboo um, ceiling, right? Because people have formed this assumption of what a leader is supposed to mm -hmm. look like and how are they 
you know, supposed to act. And when it's different and when it comes from a from someone from a different cultural background, I think a lot of, um, I don't know, Americans or whoever have a really hard time to look past that sort of notion of what they believe ingrained in their mind is the right sort of leader. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why we see this lack of representation in, um, you know, higher higher level sort of jobs Mm -hmm. yeah i think what more than anything what the bamboo ceiling really exhibits is that fundamentally because of the way the system has been created asian americans will require more years of education to just achieve the same level of Mm -hmm. success and income as whites as white americans and when i honestly when i first like realized that when i first read that in an article i kind of felt it because i just feel like there's so much more pressure on asian americans to perform mm-hmm. and to conform to that model minority myth and you know it it'll just take like already like looking statistically as you were mm-hmm. saying a large number of like ceos and people who hold high positions in society politics businesses are white Americans and rarely do you ever see an Asian American at that high of a um, rank and I think again that just shows that like society almost forces us to just work harder yeah you know not only is this minority myth um, detrimental to like you know the mental and like the social health health of Asian Americans but it's also detrimental to their interactions with the black community Mm -hmm. because I was reading so many articles that were saying that you know this model minority myth it it drives a wedge between Asians and blacks because it creates this like like you know because it generalizes everything everyone into like one minority category and then it presents these Asians as you know like like you know the like this like the example example like a golden example for like black people to follow when you know the prejudice against Asians and black people they're completely different different different. they come with their own hardships come with their own backgrounds and come with their own stories exactly like there's um I was reading that too like like the model minority myth almost pits Mm -hmm. minorities against each other when really you can't compare any struggle that any minority Mm -hmm. like you can't compare an Asian American struggle to um, a black struggle. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. Yeah. You know, Asian Americans come from a very unique um, type of place. You know, they face a unique set of issues and um, hurdles to, you know, just get to where they want to be. And again, the black community has, has experienced centuries of discrimination, mm-hmm. oppression, prejudice, brutality, like both really, really bad, but both extremely different. And what the model minority does, that myth, it's, it tries to compare two drastically different minority yeah. groups. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like with with, um, you know, the discrimination that, you know, black people had faced for centuries of enslavement. And it's like people yeah. are trying to compare to Asian Americans and say, well, you know what, if you were just a harder worker or like, if you yeah, just had like better Americans, yeah, yeah. yeah, if you had better val- family values like Asian Americans, mm-hmm. then maybe you could have like avoided that or maybe you could have just done better. And it's that is just... Though. And it ignores the the history of, you know, years and years of systemic oppression that the Mm -hmm. black people face. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, as we're talking about this model minority myth, I think you see the effects of that in politics today more than Mm -hmm. more than Mm -hmm. anything. And and, and not just with like politician, like representation of Asian Americans within politicians, but also Asian American civic and political engagement. So essentially, like in their fight to build political power, Asian Americans face more like structural disadvantages. Um, So 
I was reading an article which basically said young Asian Americans are largely influenced by their immigrant parents who come from countries with turbulent political histories. Mm -hmm. And they're told to work hard, study hard, go to school, get good grades, then get a job type of thing. And through this mentality, um, they're they're not necessarily raised to be part of the civic process, to Mm -hmm. organize, to mobilize their community, at least in the past. And the ramifications for this is that political parties, now like because of this model minority value instilling this, you know, lack of civic engagement or this impression that um, work hard, study and all that stuff, it, it kind of per- like makes people perceive the Asian American community as people who aren't capable of being political leaders because they aren't engaged. Like it's very easy to kind of look at the demographics where like in 2014, only 27% of Asian Americans, um, that, that, like that was the voter turnout for that specific demographic. And it's easy for political parties to say, well, if you're not politically mm-hmm. active, why should we consider yeah. you seriously for a position in politics? Mm-hmm. And again, that stems from this model minority myth. And again, that's just completely like a completely obscure interpretation of the of the numbers and the statistics. Yeah, because you were talking to me about Andrew Yang, right? Yeah. So essentially, Andrew Yang running for like the Democratic Party nominee was a huge step in increasing agree, yeah. Asian American representation. I mean, like, I'm not Asian American, I'm, I'm Asian, but seeing someone like Andrew Yang really up there was yeah. encouraging for me. Like, I was so happy for the Asian American mm-hmm. community. But at the same time, um, the way he ran his campaign really heavily and stereotypically conformed to the model minority mm-hmm. myth and, like, Asian stereotypes like Asians are so good at math like he literally were like was distributing yeah. hats that said yeah. math yeah are you and, kidding like, me he no, I mean sure. like he was saying that like he's just proud of his identity which is which is valid and you know he's embracing it but I think like I I honestly think it reproduces the narrow characterizations that Asian Americans have had to encounter and face a lot in mainstream media yeah mm-hmm. so like but I mean aggregately speaking Andrew Yang stepping into the political scene in the way that he did kind of was like a wake-up call for like Asian Americans that said you can break the mold like you don't have to go through a pre-planned path of like law, mm-hmm. medicine or engineering. Yeah, I did read this um, sort of story about Andrew Yang for this podcast. And there was something there was this quote that I read where he said to Asian Americans that they need to step up. We should show without a shadow of doubt that we are Americans who will do our part for our country in this time of need. And I do understand somewhat the sentiments of that when, you you know, Elizabeth, you're talking about the statistics and the lack of political involvement. But at the same time, I get this sort of vibe that it's like he's saying that, you know, or he feels that the best way to counteract racism is to appease them. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? No? Can you repeat it? We should show without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans who will do our part for our country in this time of need. So kind of how they have to do more, like you were saying, they have to do more to sort of like appease like what other people are saying about them. I, I get I get how that can be seen as appeasement, but I think like and I feel like across the board, it's more about breaking the mod like that myth that's been mm. like placed on them. I think because of because of that myth and because of that perception that Asian Americans study hard, work hard, and like that's all they do type of thing, they're so discouraged from participating in politics mm-hmm. that through the years, again, like they ha- like voter turnout from that community has been very, very low. Mm. And so I, I think that's maybe what he meant when he was saying like we need to do our part. I think he wanted more like civic engagement but i do get the thing where it's like the burden falls on them to like 
you know what I mean? Like yeah. they they have to be the ones yeah, to contribute. I can definitely see it both both ways. Yeah. But, like, at the same time, I think, like, people preach diversity and people preach, like, be more active, but they only do it selectively. Like, mm-hmm. they never, politicians rarely include, like, the Asian American experience in their, like, yeah. policies. Um, okay, I think something good that we should touch on is the idea of affirmative action while we're kind of talking about policies and myths. So, affirmative action, essentially, um, it refers to policies that positively support Um, people of underrepresented groups that have previously suffered from uh, discrimination in several areas. So it could be education, it could be employment or housing. And so, for example, some institutions or some countries will um, implement these quota systems where like a percentage of government jobs or political roles um, need to be reserved for a certain group. And I think that poses a lot of benefits in terms of representation, but um, a lot of challenges as well. If you guys want. Yeah, because like I think like I'm just trying to take this from you know more of like a student's perspective. Because I know like personally when I was applying for college, um, I was telling everyone else I was applying to Duke University for um, bachelor's in engineering, bachelor's in science, and they were saying like, oh, you're a Filipino girl applying for engineering, like you're gonna get in. Mm. And this kind of you know this affirmative action thing that a lot of colleges going uh, have going on, like I think it also detracts from you know minority achievement like you know last week we were kind of talking about all the dear duke dear georgetown accounts and you know when you read a lot of them it's an all these you know people of color um asian american students who kind of have all their accomplishments taken away from them as because they feel like they're trying to fill a certain percentage yeah Yeah, i was just gonna say like i think this whole affirmative action thing like it just takes away from the like achievement that you like even like going back to what we were talking about last week those dear uh, Dear Duke, Dear Georgetown accounts. I've seen a lot on Dear Georgetown of students blatantly saying to Asian Americans mm-hmm. that you're only in because yeah. you're, you fill the demographic. So and that. that's like, like, how dare you take away from their achievement? You know, mm-hmm. like that makes me so mad. Like, I think that's why like affirmative action is just in my head problematic because like I feel like because of that, minority groups can never feel like they really mm-hmm. achieved anything because people yeah. are always going to hold that card over them. Or you yeah. feel like you have to work so much harder in order to feel that you, you belong. Know, you, you yeah. belong or you, you, you deserved it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I definitely think that poses a really interesting idea in moral politics, right? Like individualistic values of minorities and obviously, yeah, it makes them question whether or not they got accepted or got their job through their hard work, through their merit or purely through a policy or through a quota. Um, So that sucks. But um, another sort of disadvantage that I was taking a look at, right? So I think a lot of us or everyone should believe that the color of someone's skin is not like a morally justifiable reason for treating people differently, right? Like that is just like the TLDR Mm. of a lot of movements. And I think a lot of people then argue with this affirmative action or just the belief in affirmative action. It's like, why in this case is it acceptable to favor people because of their skin color? That's what a lot of people are also like kind of on the other side who are anti-affirmative action. That's what a lot of people do believe. Going back to your whole thing on like quotas and, get, and like having a quota based on someone's skin tone, there was, I, was, I was reading an article on The Observer and it was saying that quotas are technically legal as long as you don't call them quotas. Because apparently like the Association of American Medical Colleges, so these are all for like the do- for people who want to become doctors, they set this um, like Project 3000 by 2000. And these were qualitative targets 
that stated like we had to get X amount of, pe of people from this demographic into, into medicine. And that sometimes American medical schools would compromise their academic standards in order mm -hmm. to fill these quotas. Yeah, yeah. And I think the danger of stuff like affirmative action, um, like when you find when you get that position or get into that school, people then view you as the, like they. I feel like they don't take you as seriously yeah. because mm -hmm. they don't think your achievements are what got you there. So I think like at like a workplace or like at a school they then just view you as the diversity token that's mm -hmm. supposed to be there to increase like diversity statistics of a workplace or of a school and then they just start to not take you seriously at all which is another really problematic thing with affirmative action in my opinion yeah so um i think now would be a good time to transition into um, the appropriation of asian culture in media and through that I guess we can also take a look into what do we define as appropriation and what do we define as appreciation. Like the line between yeah. appreciation mm -hmm. and appropriation. So I'm going to be looking at it more from, you know, a music, um, a music perspective. So, you know, we always see this kind of cross-cultural swap, especially in the hip-hop genre. So, you know, like Nicki Minaj's Chun-Li, very popular, Migos' Stir Fry, everyone used to jam out to that in Ocean. So, like, everyone knows those two songs. But... When I was researching, um, you know, Nicki Minaj, specifically Nicki Minaj's Chun-Li, like it was meant to be an homage to her great-grandfather who was apparently Japanese. But when you look at all her um, concerts and all her performances with that song, it kind of exoticizes Asian dancers and presents them as this kind of one-dimensional caricature. Yeah. And it flattens the identity. Like, in fact, there's like a Chun-Li challenge, I think, like, that was floating on Instagram, what? where people what? had like buns on their hair with like chopsticks oh. and that was a, that oh. was an instagram challenge <laughs> dot 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 uh. that I, okay i feel like the issue with stuff like that is that yeah the generalization of asians like there yeah. are so many cultures underneath yeah. asian that it's not that it just cannot be reduced to buns with chopsticks sticking mm -hmm. through like that's like, like that doesn't even like happen yeah. really like oh, in like you know what yeah. i mean like Chopsticks are for eating, guys. <laughs> no, like, it's like, like, the Asian community in general is so diverse. Yeah. And when, like, media and pop culture does stuff like this, people immediately, like, associate Chinese with Asian. But there's, like, other stuff as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. it's like, yeah. But I think it's really important to look at the other channel, you know, like, um, Black culture influences on Asian music. So... Um, I was reading an article in Refinery and there's this, and they were saying how there was sort of this commercialization of, you know, quote unquote, black characteristics to create images of strength and power, which would counteract these, in, these stereotypes like enforced by the model minority myth. And so like there would be, you know, rappers like Nav and Stupid Young, um, who are Punjabi and Cambodian res respectively, who freely use the hard N word in their rap, which is very problematic. Yeah. And then, you know, going into the rise of K-pop, you know, yeah. BTS, Blackpink, um, so yeah, even though they're mostly known for, you know, K-pop music, I think it's important for everyone to understand that, you know, BTS extensively borrows music from black artists whilst getting all the credit and without properly understanding, you know, the orig origins of all this music. So when we look at the origins of K-pop specifically, um, we can see that, you know, modern K-pop originated with this guy. I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, Taiji? Don't know if I'm saying this right, but... Uh, you know, he integrated from various sources of African-American dance, um, R&B, and hip-hop. So we can see, like, in, in modern-day K-pop today, whether it's BTS, Blackpink, 
you know, drum patterns are, for tra are from trap music, the synths are from trunk, and all these melodies are incorporated from, you know, the modern jack swing, which are all black cultural, it's, it's all black cultural music. And, you know, in short, I think the only way forward in the music industry is through open dialogue and yeah. collaboration yeah. and giving credit, you know, where credit is due. Where credit is due, for sure. I think that's like a, a like, I think to me, that's, yeah, that's like the distinguish, like how you distinguish appropriation and appreciation. Like you, like need to acknowledge the meaning yeah. behind yes, all of this yeah. stuff if you're going to use it. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, the music industry is an extremely collaborative and creative process. Yeah. And you're naturally going to seek influence from other music styles, genres, and traditions and cultures. But again, it's about understanding where it comes from and, you know, really representing it to the best of your ability and not like reducing it to just something that you can use for yeah. your like mm -hmm. popularity. You, you know? know, if Rich Chigga can change his name to Rich Brian and, you know, if Keith Ape can rip off a song from a black hip hop um, artist, they can all, you know, kind of learn more about it. Like all black artists, I mean, all Asian artists can learn more about black music sure. and where it comes yeah, from for sure yeah um i think film also as yeah. a different lens of media has made it's made good progress in terms of yeah. evolving from asian stereotypes as well as um bringing more asian representation in hollywood but i don't think yeah. we're necessarily there yet i mean to start off with you know old hollywood and yellow face i think one of the movies that are films that I grew up with was Breakfast at Tiffany's, mm -hmm. which was in the 1960s. And um, Mickey Rooney, who's a white man, played like this crazy Japanese landlord character. And there was an evolution in the perception of this role because when this was first released, everyone saw it as like exotic in like on like positive terms. Mm -hmm. And I think since the 1990s or 2000s, it's really been defined as like overtly racist. Yeah, for sure. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, like, you know, a lot of Chinese, Amer a lot of Asian actors during old Hollywood, they were kind of pigeonholed into specific um, roles that they could like fill. Typecasted. Yeah. yeah. So let's take like Anna Mae Wong, for example, who was probably like the most one of the most popular like Asian actresses of old Hollywood. And I was reading on her her audition for Good Earth, and she really wanted to portray this rural Chinese farmer to portray all the hardships of being Asian. And she was actually unable to get the role because production prevented had this they had this law which prevented interracial romances. So they cast oh, a white what? German woman to play the role of an Asian of an Asian character, mm -hmm. and Anna Mae Wong had to teach that woman how to use chopsticks. Oh, that's, um, I think the issue with both cases that you guys brought up is like you're reducing, <laughs> reducing, reducing the Asian identity like like of all like asian ethnicities you're reducing yeah. that to like a physical appearance yeah. and that like no i, I don't even no, know no, like no. if that if it's not obvious why that's wrong to you please read on it but like the, I, the only thing i can say to that is no period yeah 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 i mean we have gotten better i guess you know crazy rich asians joy luck club joy luck club i mean we've really seen that sort of evolution in an entire cast being played by actual Asians or Asian Americans. Um, I think that there was a lot of debate though. Um, you know, there was this sort of like problematic loop of conflating, like Elizabeth said, Asian with East Asian and then boiling it down yeah. to this whole Asian American experience. Mm -hmm. And that reinforces, you know, boundaries around whose representation matters. And it also alienates 
people who are, you know, already cast aside within the Asian category. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think there, there's, like, we have advanced in terms of, you know, having actual Asian Americans and Asian people play Asian roles mm-hmm. as they should be. But at the same time, I think we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Like, Crazy Rich Asians, you were saying, like, you were mentioning, like, that really was, like, monumental in the sense that it mm-hmm. was an all-Asian cast. And that, like, you know, that was really, like, a great thing as, like, someone who's half Asian to see. But at the same time, I think also that the movie itself kind of fed into stereotypes. Yeah. And I think, again, like, in a similar way that Andrew Yang's campaign mm-hmm. just promoted the funneling of um, the Asian American experience into a really narrow characterization, I think yeah. the movie did the same thing. I think what kind of sucks about that is that's what draws people in to watch it. Yeah. You know, the cra- in Crazy Rich Asians, it's like the crazy the big house and the lavish yeah. lifestyle. And like Andrew Yang, that was like his sort of like, adver- that was like his sort of just like thing. Yeah. It's like people are now using their stereotypes as a way to yeah. appeal to other people. You know what? Hot take. I honestly like, since we were just talking about model minority, I feel like Crazy Rich Asians just feeds into model minority yeah, because it's, so. they're just portraying rich Asians, which like, yeah, that demographic exists, but like because it's sensationalized, mm-hmm. because that's the thing that gets mm, people to agree. watch those movies, I think it just perpetuates this model minority myth as the Asian, the entire Asian community yeah. as like living such lavish uh, like you know so like like such luxurious lifestyles and again just sweeps under the rug all the other discriminate discriminatory issues the poverty they experience you know Mm -hmm. just like the hardships just get hidden once again that's why i I like crazy rich asians but i also don't like it you know you know moving forward with like you know like asian representation in cinema i think it would be really nice to see a movie dedicated to Southeast Asians. Because, like, yeah, you yes. know, being a 100%. Filipino woman, I get, don't get to see yeah. a lot of yes, South Asian yeah. representation. Oh my God, snaps to that. I feel like what people, like, I feel like a lot of the times when people say Asian now, they conflate it with East Asian. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's not just there's East so, Asian. Yeah. There's Southeast Asian. There's South Asian. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, there's so many more experiences that you need to include. Yeah, I want to just give a little shout out, though, to one of my favorite TV shows, Fresh Off the Boat, because they do have, like, some sort of stereotypes, like, the classic tiger mom, the whatever. But I think they also, like, that is, I think, very relatable to the Asian American community. It gives them a voice. And I think they also do a really good job. While they do have some stereotypes, they also attempt to subvert stereotypes as well. And they aren't afraid to show the nuances of an an Asian American family. So, yeah. Anyway, I also wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, Asian appropriation in fashion so i'm like mm-hmm. the thing right now on social media is this fox eye trend oh my god i like this is my new ted talk because like <laughs> i literally like it's 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 i i would never experience the type of like hate that a lot of asian americans experience a part like for like you know the stretching of the eyes like people like i remember in elementary school people would go up to like some of my friends and like literally stretch mm-hmm. their eyelids the way the fox eye trend does it now and make fun of them for the for something they can't control yeah. and now it's acceptable to have that style because models like bella hadid and kendall mm-hmm. jenner are doing it suddenly you're turning something that people used to get bullied for into yeah. something that is sensationalized and like into a trend that really again sweeps under the rug mm-hmm. there's a all that struggle like there's no like 
it's it's also not a, like it's also makeup like the extreme winged liner but also like the stretching of the face now they're like cosmetic surgeries that enhance like yeah. that stretch out your eyes to create that fox eye look and it's like that's that that in itself again reduces the whole asian american experience but like mm-hmm. really invalidates all the stuff that they had to go through i don't mm-hmm. know what you guys think yeah. don't even get me started on like using like the chong sam cut and like oh dresses. my god that makes me mad because especially when people start to sexualize so chong sam for oh. you guys who, that don't know it's um it's a it's a dress that was create like I think popularized in Shanghai around the 1920s. It's it's meant to be a really feminine dress, but it was a big part of kind of that um, period in history within Shanghai and within China. I, I was reading that that cut specifically was supposed to signify the women's liberation in China. I know, mm-hmm. but then people are like sexualizing it now. Like literally, literally Met Gala 2015. The mm-hmm. theme was China through the looking glass. I swear to God. Everybody showed up in a hypersexualized Chong Sam. I'm into it. What are you and, doing, girl? And okay, and this is the this is the bad part. People like Fox Eye also existed back then because the makeup that people were wearing on the red carpet was literally like extreme mm-hmm. eyeliner. And like some celebrities again were conflating different Asian groups. Like mm-hmm. I think who was it? Lady Gaga showed up in like a kimono X like Hanbok type of gear. Bro. And the theme was China through the looking glass. Oh, and I, I just, you know what? And majority of them wore dresses from American or Western designers. Mm-hmm. Only Rihanna was the only one who wore a dress from a Chinese yeah, designer, cool. Pei. Okay. So now that brings a debate. Like when is it considered appreciation and when is it considered appropriation? I mean, kind of like what you said before, I think you show respect to, you know, the piece that you wear or the whatever, like, you know appropriation or thing that you want to like emulate i guess and understand its cultural meaning though i do think that there are just some pieces of a culture or some customs that should just be for example a turban yeah some things that should just sort of be untouched yeah the thing the issue that i had like with the whole like looking at it like more accurately like the whole met gala thing the asian america like you can't you can't selectively pick what stuff you mm-hmm. want to like take from that community like to have such a high profile event like the met gala literally be selective in terms of what they want to portray about the asian american community and just portray the fashion and not even portray the fashion accurately yeah. that to me is appropriation yeah. because you're ignoring the experience of that demographic and reducing it to their like reducing their identity to just fashion mm-hmm. okay so now i think it's really important to talk about you know racism now with the coronavirus you know or what Oof. trump likes to refer to as the chinese virus mm-hmm. and mike pompeo likes to refer to it as the wuhan virus so you know a leader sets the climate for what is acceptable and for what is not acceptable and now i feel like he's basically made it okay mm-hmm. to have this anti-asian bias and that is awful because I feel like we're reversing a lot of the progress that was made um I mean this this also I mean Trump wasn't in presidency like ages ago but like with the SARS outbreak also there was like a whole yeah there was so much discrimination towards the Asian population yeah I think a lot of okay so this is like the argument that I heard when people were like trying to defend Trump calling it the China virus they said well in 1920 it was called the spanish flu so why can't we call corona like the china virus but like 
you like there's Trump is already very anti-China. Mm-hmm. Like we do we do not need this. Yeah. And second of all, it's like you're you're labeling it the China virus first. It's very misleading. Mm-hmm. Like you just like you can't reduce a virus to one like yeah. country. You know what I mean? It's a virus. And, like, at the same... It just fuels, like, xenophobia within the nation. Also, the Spanish flu was, like, centuries ago. I know. Like, yeah, I'd I like... We, we have... We've progressed. Not to say that that is, like, not okay now, well, but like, just, you know... Yeah. yeah. It's, like, also really interesting to see how COVID has really brought out this wider strand of seeded xenophobia towards Asians and Western society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I was uh, in... When I went to New York for spring break my mom was literally scared to wear a mask because she would read stories of people like Asians wearing masks in public getting beaten up and saying like take the virus back to your country like you did this to us for wearing a mask like 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 that like there's just so like I think it just this whole like virus and kind of the narrative of it being a China virus Mm -hmm. quote-unquote just perpetuates or like activates kind of the deep-rooted xenophobia that a lot of people unfortunately have you know and also merges you know asian americans and americans because when you have when you direct these insults towards asian americans who have never been out of the country like go back to your own hunk, own country i mean like to them america this is my, yeah this is, is their country yeah. yeah exactly and you know like the thing the thing with like corona is that i again like just heard so many stories of like asians and asian americans literally being like targeted mm-hmm. in in the like just walking to the grocery store like getting groceries and literally being undermined and being like shamed for bringing the virus like that's not how it works like study study some biology Mm -hmm. yeah speaking of studying i think it's time to talk about how we can unlearn some of these biases that you know are often perpetuated you know i don't think it's possible to necessarily unlearn a bias or a stereotype like i think these some of these are just like aspects that have been culturally ingrained in us since for children. I think now it's a matter of time of not unlearning a bias, but just trying to overcome yeah, the I bias. One hundred percent. And I think like connecting it back to this whole conversation we had about fashion, film, and music. You obviously, especially in fashion, when they design clothes that are similar to a Chong Sam cut. You know, designers, especially in fast fashion, they're not anthropologists. Mm-hmm. You know, like people say you you don't like we shouldn't expect them to do the research but at the same time you need to know the cultural significance of what you're wearing and you need to see like the importance because again like reducing it to just a trend to just a piece of clothing again swiping so many things under the rug like i think a lot of education needs to be underway in order to you know avoid these biases basically yeah. i do agree that we can't necessarily unlearn biases because it's like ex- I think we could just be more conscious yeah. of what biases that we are holding. Yeah. We are yeah. holding, and then also understanding where a lot of the influence comes from, whether it's fashion, whether it's music, whether it's film, and also giving credit to where, where credit is due. I mean, you know, not everything has to be appropriation because, like, it's a collab. Like, ultimately, collaborating and like learning from each other's cultures is really what a picture-perfect globalized world should look like. Mm -hmm. But at this point, it just doesn't seem like we're trying to learn from each other. We're just trying to steal the quote-unquote good parts from each other. And that's just, Mm -hmm. for all minority groups, problematic. Yeah. So, So, yeah, I think that concludes our episode. We hope that you enjoyed us talking about Asian representation. Yeah, and we Um, hope you learned something new. Yeah, so. All right, thank you, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Bye.